You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Tarshish, Britain, being prepared to fulfill Bible prophecy. Hello, and welcome to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by ChristadelphianVideo.org. And in this episode, we're going to be taking a look at one of the talks from the Kent Prophecy Day, which was held yesterday, the 2nd of April. Now, the purpose of Bible prophecy in this episode is outlined, and Britain is identified in terminology. The biblical reason is given for why Britain had to exit Europe. This is an excellent talk presented by Brother Matthew Pierce of the Rugby Ecclesia here in the UK. Um, It's a great all-round talk and well worth having your Bibles open and marking pens ready to make some notes. There's some very useful facts and historical facts within this episode so if you want to watch the video of this because there are slides accompanying this episode head over to christadelphianvideo.org and you can either search under matthew pierce under speaker search by speaker or if you're quick it should still be on the home page where the last nine videos that we upload will be on the home page or just click on the button underneath those videos where it says more Hope you enjoy it. Until next time, God bless. We're going to look at Tarshish this afternoon. We're going to think about um, a number of aspects. We're going to look at the scriptures, see where Tarshish um, occurs in the scriptures. We're going to look at uh, Latter-day prophecies about Tarshish and see uh, what Tarshish is going to do um, before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and indeed after the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as we sung together in that hymn, God's kingdom is going to be a kingdom that is centred in Jerusalem. And it's the first and foremost that they're going to be the Jewish people who are going to be the inhabitants of that kingdom. But the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns on God's behalf, is going to be a kingdom that is a worldwide kingdom. And it will incorporate the bringing in of Gentile nations. There will be a great preaching effort to go out to to the ends of the earth to teach people of the truth of God. And involved in that will be these Tarshish powers. They are going to be um, the first of the nations to to bring their offerings to the Lord Jesus Christ, to accept him as the king, uh, and they will be the first of many nations. And so it's very exciting to, to see around us the things that are taking place that are preparing uh, this Tarshish power for the work that it shall uh, it will begin uh, when the the kingdom is established. Now I've got uh, some uh, headlines there from uh, 2016. It seems a very long time ago now, doesn't it, that we had the referendum? And I think most of us thought uh, when that referendum uh, uh, took place and the, the votes were counted the next day that it would be a relatively straightforward process. And yet, although the process has advanced, uh, we've had. Uh, lots of uh, challenges on the way. Uh, we've seen, as it were, the, the, the fight of man against the, the will of God. And those that would have kept uh, Britain as part of the European system tried to, tried to change what God wanted and, and the angels working in the, the background. And so the exhortation from that is we shouldn't expect things to be seamless. We shouldn't see, uh, expect to see a linear movement prophecy is a little bit like the tide it looks like it's coming and going and only over time can you really discern whether the tide is coming in or going out and so we have to watch the signs of the times over a long period of time to discern uh, the events that are taking place so we're going to look at as i say tosh in the scripture we're going to concentrate on the latter day Uh, references. We're going to spend some time identifying Tarshish because it's important that we know with certainty who the Tarshish power is. Uh, And then having done that, we're going to look at Britain's future role. 
Now, there are eight prophecies that relate to the latter days that mention Tarshish. In fact, it's about half of the mentions that you have in the scriptures of Tarshish. So God has put down on record references to this power with regard to the kingdom to come. We're going to look at Isaiah, but Isaiah makes a, an interesting statement because Tyre said, or Tyre, Isaiah says that Tyre, that trading power that was to the north of Israel, moves to Tarshish, and that's what we will look at a little bit later. But let's just think about some principles of the scripture. We would say that the scriptures are infallible. They are put down by God. And as such, we would say that his word is far superior to the word of man. So the scriptures give us a, a clear picture of what the role of Tarshish is and the things that would have come from Tarshish uh, in script Bible times. And sometimes we have it that the archaeologist doesn't agree with what the Bible says. and says, oh, that couldn't have been the case at that time. But we say the word of God is superior. And very interestingly, in the last five or ten years, the archaeological discoveries have, have turned people's uh, understanding of, of ancient times and of ancient uh, maritime trade just to how the scripture describes them. And so we are always regarding the scripture as our highest authority. So let's just think about the Phoenicians, because the Phoenicians are part of that uh, Tyrian power. The Tyrians were part of the Phoenician power. Uh, and they are the ones that, uh, as we shall say in Isaiah, they are the ones that eventually end up in this Tarshish power. Now, we know, don't we, from the time of Solomon that there was this great uh, uh, Tyrian power, Hiram, king of Tyre, who, who brings things for the temple. They were a, 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 a commonwealth, really, of, of city-states uh, dotted around uh, the uh, eastern Mediterranean. They traded with each other, they allied with each other, but there was competition between them as well. And Tyre and Sidon were the, the preeminent members of this alliance. Now, eventually, Tyre is conquered by Alexander the Great with the, uh, with the help of the Cypriots. But the Tyrian people, because they are a maritime people, they just move. First of all, they, they go to Carthage, uh, and then they go even further westwards, as the scriptures indicate. And they were important people. The Greeks were very um, keen on, on uh, Hellenizing the people that they took over. But because the Phoenicians were a sea people, they could be independent. They didn't change much when the Greek influences came along. And in the Greek empires and the Roman empires, uh, they're still around doing what they always did, which was sail and trade on the sea. Now, I've got a little timeline at the bottom just so you can sort of put in context uh, where we are in history when we're talking about certain events. But we all know the story of Jonah, don't we? And uh, we're told here uh, that uh, he wants to flee from the presence of God and he wants to go um, to Tarshish. This is the height of the, the Phoenician powers. He goes from Joppa. Well, Joppa is a, a Phoenician port and he's going off in a western direction, isn't he? So it gives us an idea of where Tarshish may be in relation to Israel. And he sees Tarshish as that place that's so far away, surely the presence of God can't be there. So it's not somewhere that's nearby. It's not somewhere where people knew. The second of Chronicles, we haven't uh, got time to, to go there, but uh, uh, when we look at the second of Chronicles, we have a description of the things that uh, come from these ships of Tarshish. We're told it's a, it's a long journey, a three-year trip uh, to go out, and there is brought back gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Now, we wouldn't particularly associate apes and peacocks with um, Britain, if we, uh, if we can identify Tarshish as Britain, but it's interesting that actually both apes and peacocks 
uh, don't have to come from India, which is perhaps where we would think of them originally. Uh, they can be picked up from the, uh, the western coast of Africa. So not Tarshish, but perhaps on the way, or not that far away, once you've got through the, um, the, the, the Medi out of the Mediterranean and into the Atlantic. Ivory, we might not associate ivory with this country, but in actual fact, up in the, uh, the Hebridean Islands and out into Shetland, ivory from Wales and narwhals was actually quite an industry. You don't have to get ivory just from elephants. But Hanno, the navigator, now he's you know, 600 um, BC, so at the end of the Phoenician Empire, uh, he describes a voyage to Africa. And he describes circumnavigating the whole of Africa and ending up back uh, uh, down in the sort of uh, Egyptian, sort of uh, southern Israel area. But he also describes um, visiting the Cassiteride Islands, which we would associate with Sicily uh, and Cornwall. So there are extensive trade routes by sea that are described uh, in history. And of course, the Bible describes the Phoenicians as being great navigators of the sea. So there are eight latter-day prophecies that include references to Tarshish. Uh, we're going to look at um, most of them, but not all of them. So come with me, first of all, to Isaiah chapter 23. Now, Isaiah 23 is, our, I, I guess, our most comprehensive chapter. Uh, Ezekiel 38 might be more famous uh, because we, we often refer to that with the Gogian invasion. But Isaiah 23 talks about uh, Tarshish and it talks about Tyre. It's primarily uh, a chapter about uh, the destruction of Tyre. And it uh, starts off, doesn't it, the burden of Tyre. How ye ships of Tarshish for it is laid waste, so there's no more house, no entering in. From the land of Chittim, it is revealed to them. Be still, ye inhabitants of the isle, thou whom the merchants of Zidon shall that pass over the sea hath replenished. So Tyre is going to, to be no more because of their, their arrogance and because of their um, waywardness. But God, through Isaiah, says something very interesting in verse 6. Of Tyre, he says, pass over to Tarshish. Howl, ye inhabitants of the isle. For in this your joyous city, whose antiquity is of ancient days, her own feet shall carry her far off to sojourn. And if you just dip into verse 20, uh, we're told that, and he said, Thou shalt no more rejoice, O thou oppressed virgin, daughter of Zidon. Arise, pass over to Chittim, there also shalt thou have no rest. So, so this was a seafaring people. When they were under threat, they decided to go elsewhere. First to Chittim, to Cyprus, but we're told there that their, that their feet would have no rest there. And we know from history that... Uh, the Phoenicians then uh, set up Carthage, but the scriptures say that's not going to be the end point of them. They're going to go to Tarshish. That is going to be their ultimate destination. And so we see in the scriptures a description of this Tyrian power now being moved by her own feet, or maybe we would say her own sails, all the way to Tarshish. Uh, and then we have an entwining, really, of the role of Tyre and the role of Tarshish, because we're told in verse 14, how ye ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste. And it shall come to pass that in that day that Tyre shall be forgotten 70 years. And we know well this, uh, this, these verses, uh, and we uh, apply it to Her Majesty the Queen. And we say, well, why is that the case? Why are we saying that this that primarily talks about being for Tyre, why has that got an application to this country? Well, well, there are two reasons. First of all, this chapter ends with the kingdom. Verse 18, her merchandise and her hire shall be holiness to the Lord. 
It shall not be treasured nor laid up, for her merchandise shall be for them that dwell before the Lord, to eat sufficiently and for durable clothing. Now, put it to you that that has to be kingdom language. That has to be the, the Lord Jesus Christ being in his kingdom. And so it is saying that this Tyrian power is going to be bringing things to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful mirror of what Hiram did. Remember, Hiram helped with the building of the temple under Solomon. He bought materials. He gave labor. But the other thing is, this 70 years as a king, you see, there are monarchs that have ruled longer than 70 years, but there are not many. You can more or less count them on one hand. And so in history, there is no time where a Tyrian king reigned for 70 years. And the fact that this is uh, talked about in the same context as the return of the Lord Jesus Christ makes us see that this is a latter-day prophecy. So what happens at the end of these 70 years? Well, verse 17, it shall come, come to pass at the end of the 70 years that the Lord will visit Tyre, and she shall turn to her hire, and shall commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world upon the face of the earth. So we should expect to see that whoever this Tarshish power is, they have a period of decline, a period of being forgotten. And then at the end of 70 years, they suddenly start training with the world again. They suddenly become very rich. And that is perhaps what we expect to see. Now, Ezekiel 38, I'm just going to go quickly through these other passages because um, we're just... Uh, adding a little bit more to our understanding. We'll go to Ezekiel um, 38, just because I want to pick another reference uh, in Ezekiel. We know these passages well, don't we? Verse 13, Sheba and Dedan, and this is opposing the Gogian force, and the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lions thereof, shall say unto thee, art thou come to take a spoil? So at the time of the invasion of Israel, there is this other force that doesn't go along with what is happening in Israel. Sheba and Dedan, well, we, we uh, identify those with the, the Gulf states. And the merchants of Tarshish, when tying in with, with what Isaiah has told us, this is a merchant power. It's a, it's a power that's associated with ancient Tyre. But there's another group with them, isn't there? the young lions thereof. The sceptical say, well, young lions, it talks about villages. That's what, that's what it means, is villages. Well, of the 30-odd occasions that it is translated in the authorised version, one time is it translated villages. The rest is lions. And in actual fact, if we come back to Ezekiel and chapter 19, the scriptures make it clear what, what God is thinking of when he uses this phrase, the young lions. Now, this is in a different context, but the image is the same. Chapter 19 of Isaiah and verse 1. Moreover, take thou up a lamentation for the princes of Israel. So this is to do with the rulers. And say, what is thy mother? A lioness. She lay down among lions. She nourished her whelps among young lions. She brought up one of her whelps. It became a young lion. It learned to catch the prey. It devoured man. The nations heard of him. He was taken in their pit, and they brought him with chains into the land of Egypt. What you have here is a description of, of a ruling class, an older lion. And she nurtures and brings up the young lions. So they're able to get to a point where they are self-sufficient, that they can look after themselves. They can do the same role that the old line used to do. And if we think of the events of this country, with its commonwealth and with those nations that became independent, I don't think you can find a more fitting description 
than the young lions described here in Ezekiel 19. Now, Psalm 48, uh, we're not going to go to Psalm 48 because uh, uh, we haven't really got time, but, but Psalm 48 has got um, kingdom uh, references to it. We can see the kingdom age uh, being described there. But it gives us a little phrase. It talks about the God having the power to, to destroy the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. Now, we can't be dogmatic, but that perhaps indicates that Britain, as we shall see, is Tarshish. Britain will be humbled. This, this rising up again will come to an end. And Britain will be humbled again. And through that humbling, very much like the nation of Israel, they will then accept the Lord Jesus Christ. So all this power and mercantile force that Tarshish is going to have at the time of the end, perhaps is taken away. But her wealth is still there. We know that from Isaiah, don't we? Because she brings her wealth to the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 72, again, words that are well known to us. Again, uh, sort of a passage that we turn to, don't we, when we want to describe what the kingdom of God is going to be like. But here again, there's a reference to Tarshish. Verse 10, the kings of Tarshish and the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Beginning of the kingdom, there's an invitation that goes out to the nations. Come and serve the king. And some will say, yes, I will. And others will say, no, I won't. I will resist. Well, here we're told that, uh, that Tarshish and, and the Gulf states will accept the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. A couple of passages in Isaiah. Let's just go to Isaiah chapter 60. Again, clearly uh, talking about the kingdom, uh, verse one, arise, shine, for the light, for thy light is come. So here's a glorious uh, manifestation of the kingdom. And then verse nine, surely the isles shall wait for me and the ships of Tarshish first to bring thy sons from far, their silver and gold with them, and to the name of the Lord thy God, and to the Holy One of Israel, because he hath glorified thee. So we have a number of clues there about Tarshish. Uh, it's associated with the isles. And what's it going to do? It's going to use this worldwide network to bring the Jewish people back to the land of Israel. Because we know that the kingdom isn't, isn't really established in its fullest form until you've got all of the Jews back in their land, there with their Messiah. And so it will be the role of Tarshish to bring them back and to bring their offerings with them. Isaiah talks about the wealth of Tarshish being used. But here it's the, the offerings of the Jewish people that are scattered around the world. Come back and, and bring what you've got to give it to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's an active work there, isn't there, of establishing the kingdom that this Tarshish power is involved with. And just a little final reference, Isaiah chapter 66, and verse 19. And I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them unto the nations, to Tarshish, Paul, and Lud, that draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the isles afar off, that have not heard my fame, neither have they seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory amongst the Gentiles. So here is the message going out to these nations, including to Tarshish, to convert the people, to preach to them the acceptable year of the Lord, and to bring them into a covenant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Tarshish will accept as a nation, but the individuals within that nation need to come to a personal 
acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've alluded to the fact that we know who Tarshish is, but of course, we need to have some evidence. Why is it that we as a community for 150 years and, you know, Bible students before that time have identified Britain uh, as being part of this Tarshish power? Well, when you look superficially at the Phoenicians, you see a number of similarities between our nation and the Phoenician nation. It was an ancient civilization composed of independent city-states, which lay along the coast of the Mediterranean. The Phoenicians were a great maritime people. And the Phoenician phonetic alphabet was adopted and modified by the Greeks, probably in the eighth century. This most likely didn't come from a single instance, but a culmination of commercial exchange. In other words, the Phoenician alphabet spread around because it was useful for transactions. It was useful for com commerce. It was the language of business. And consequently, the Phoenicians not only imported what they needed and exported what they themselves cultivated and manufactured, but they acted as middlemen traders. In fact, that was the source of their enormous wealth. They could make enormous gains by selling a commodity with a low value, such as oil or pottery, for another, such as tin or silver, which was not in itself valued by the producers, but could, could fetch enormous prices elsewhere. So they'd worked out, if you take this thing from this place where it's produced, well, nobody values it because that's, that's, it's common. Move it somewhere else where it's not common. You can sell it for a lot more. And, and their trade, their wealth was built on that principle. But there was competition between city-states as the region. They were allied together, but they weren't all um, part of the same city. The skill of the sailors who transported the goods, the high art attained by the craftsmen and manufacturer of the goods. Competition was particularly keen between the cities of Sidon and Tyre, arguably the most famous of the city-states. And they transmitted the cultural beliefs and societal norms of the nations they traded with to each other. So, so there was a spreading around of, of the ideas. And Phoenicians were in fact called the ancient middlemen of culture by many scholars and historians because of their role in cultural transference. So it wasn't just about trade, uh, culture and, and language through their alphabet also uh, were, were traded. And the Phoenicians were primarily known as sailors who developed a high level of skill in shipbuilding and were able to navigate the often turbulent waters of the Mediterranean Sea. Shipbuilding seems to have been perfected at Biblios, where the design of the curved hull was first initiated. So on the face of it, you can see lots of links between Great Britain as a maritime nation that, that has this trade uh, that spreads around the world, that spreads the language as a trading nation, and the nation of time. But of course, we want more than just, uh, as it were, uh, surface coincidence. We want to see if there is more evidence that really can show to us that beyond doubt, we can say that this Tarshish power is Great Britain. We could ask ourselves, well, what tests would we need to, to put in place? What, what questions do we need to answer? so that we could say, yes, definitively, this must be the Tarshish power. Well, I guess the thing we really would like would be an ancient inscription that says, do you know what, Tarshish is located uh, just north of France uh, in, the, in the Atlantic, uh, and it's called Britain. That, that would be great, wouldn't it? Uh, we perhaps can't quite get to that, but we can get close, I think. Physical evidence that tin was mined in Britain. And we'll come on to why tin is important in a few moments. But if we could find physical evidence that at the time of Solomon, the time of the Phoenician Empire, tin was being mined in this country, that would be great evidence, wouldn't it? If we could find that that tin was traded in the Mediterranean, that would be even better. And if we could find that that tin that was that was mined in, in Britain, was traded in the Mediterranean and was got there by ship, well, wouldn't that vindicate everything that the scriptures say? 
And 20 years ago, if you spoke to archaeologists and you spoke to historians, they would be skeptical about that sort of thing. But I say to you that actually we can demonstrate all those last three things through archaeology and through science. We can demonstrate that tin was mined in Cornwall, was transported to the Mediterranean, and it was done so by ship. All of the things that the scriptures describe. Now, when we look at accounts of Tarshish, it seems to be a place where metals were sourced from. I know we've got uh, apes and peacocks, but the rest of it's metal, isn't it? Silver, iron, tin, lead, gold, silver, ivory. Ivory is not a metal, but it was still traded. When we look at this country, we discover that all of those metals could be traded or could be found in this country. And equally interestingly, we can find place names in this country that are associated or have meaning in the ancient Phoenician tongue. There are places where people say, well, why is it called that, that particular name? It doesn't seem to have any meaning in the local language. And yet when you go to the Phoenician language, the word is very similar and it has a meaning like headland or, or um, a sort of promontory, that sort of thing. We're going to look at the Isle of Thanet in a few moments. You'll notice that there's a few down in, uh, in Cornwall, um, Sicily, uh, Sicily, Scilly, it's not Sicily, is it? Uh, the Scilly Isles uh, are, are reputed to have a Phoenician origin. And notice particularly up in the Hebrides, the word Hebrides uh, is, is uh, looked sort of as having uh, a Phoenician origin and quite a few of the islands. Now, isn't that interesting? Because if you were wanted to get ivory from... Um, sea animals, that's where you would have to go all the way up there. It's not such a good industry in Cornwall. So why are we interested in tin? Why, do we use, why did I use tin as being the, the thing that I wanted to look for? Well, there's a very simple explanation. Things like gold, silver, you can get those from, from lots of different sources. Tin is different. This is a, a man called Mahali, who's a, a geologist, an archaeologist, uh, and he's wrote, written a very interesting book called The Sources of Tin and the Beginnings of Bronze Meteorology. Now, why is tin important with bronze? Think of the Bronze Age. Well, tin is required to be um, cast in with copper to make bronze. It's the tin that makes the copper stronger. So the Bronze Age was built on, on this technology of bringing together one part of tin, 10 parts of copper together to make bronze. And you imagine how much bronze was used in the Bronze Age, huge amounts. So you needed a 10th of that amount for tin. But the thing is, tin is not commonly found. Uh, he, he writes and says, the tin resources of the Mediterranean world as known from modern geological survey, are insignificant in terms of modern economic geology. In other words, having enough um, to build uh, a Bronze Age on. Most important of all is the absolute geological principle that tin is only to be found in association with granite rock. No granite, no possibility of tin. You've got to have granite. So the places in the ancient world where tin was found, well, you could go eastward from Israel to Anatolia uh, and uh, over to sort of um, Afghanistan, and there was tin there. But, but if we look sort of westwards, then the sources of tin are, are really just Spain, uh, Britain, so uh, Cornwall, uh, Brittany, and uh, Germany. Those are the only places where you're going to get significant quantities of tin. So in Germany, the tin is uh, at this slightly unpronounceable place of Erdgeberger. Uh, but uh, Mahali says that's it's the right sort of stuff, it's tin, but it's, it's down in the ground. It's got to be mined, deep mines. Um, it's not um, on the surface. So Cornish tin 
I mean, they've got mines now, but originally there was there was plenty of tin in the rivers, almost like you'd, you'd plan for gold. You could pick up tin that way. So, so he says, you've got to discount Germany, although it might seem quite attractive in terms of distance from the Mediterranean. It's too deep. They didn't have the technology to, to mine that deep in those days. And in actual fact, there's very good evidence for that in this Namara sky disk. Now, this um, ancient disk, which is dated to about 1600 BC, so before ever the Phoenician Empire really took off, this was, this was made and it was found in Germany. So you think, well, okay, uh, it's bound to have German tin in it, isn't it? Well, no. It's actually got tin from Cornwall and it's got gold from Cornwall as well. And yet it is in the heart of Germany. And you could ask ourselves, well, how can you, how can you tell where the tin comes from? Well, there's a very interesting science of tin isotopy, which allows them to compare the sample of tin with, uh, as it were, a database of known tin sources. And you can identify right down to a very small region where that tin came from, a fingerprint. And that is transforming the understanding of sources of tin in the ancient times. You do it with other things as well, gold uh, and even teeth. So that shows us that really before the start of the Phoenician age, tin was being mined in Cornwall and it was also being traded in Corn from Cornwall around the world. So, so it, it removes our, our German source. Now the other source is um, Spain, uh, a lot of tin in Spain. But the thing with the Spanish tin is it was relatively easy to, to, to know where it came from because where it was located, you would use the river systems in Spain to bring it into the Mediterranean. So, so everybody knew where that tin came from because you could take a boat across the Mediterranean and then go up the river in Spain uh, and find it. But that didn't seem to be the, uh, the source of the tin, uh, according to Herodotus. Uh, he's writing 500 BC, so that's uh, you know after the Phoenician age. But he's looking back into his history and he says though but concerning those in europe that are the farthest away towards the evening i cannot speak with assurance for i do not believe that there is a river called by foreigners uh, around us issuing into the northernmost sea or the northern sea where our amor is said to come from nor do i have any knowledge of tin islands where our tin is brought from nor for all my diligence have I been able to learn from one who has seen it that there is a sea beyond Europe. All we know is that our tin and amber come from the most distant parts. So where the tin came from was shrouded in mystery because those who knew made great gain from knowing where it was. But from this, we can tell that it came from islands, the tin islands, and it also seemed to be associated with something else, isn't it? The amber comes from the same sort of area. So this does two things for us. It eliminates our Spanish tin as the source of tin, but it also, by associating it with the amber, gives us, gives us a good idea of, of the trading routes that would have taken place. Herodotus says, I don't know whether there's a sea beyond the end of the Mediterranean. Well, of course, we know there is a sea beyond the end of the Mediterranean. But he says, I don't believe there's a river where this amber's found either. But actually, if you have a look, uh, you can see the, the deposits of amber. Probably the Elbe is what he's talking about, the river. Uh, the amber was sourced from there. But if you're going to get amber, then you're going to have to sail up the English Channel, aren't you? You're going to have to pass by Thanet and uh, Kent uh, and uh, the Isle of Wight. So it makes sense that the amber and the tin would be associated together because they're coming from a similar geographical um, area. But there's further evidence of that uh, in uh, this article in the Daily Telegraph, buried at Stonehenge, boy with the amber necklace. So it goes on to say that uh, there were sightseeing families uh, even thousands of years ago. They're dating this about 1500 BC, so right again at the start of the Phoenician age. You've got somebody 
In Stonehenge, who's wearing an amber necklace? Well, you could say, well, what's remarkable about that? But, you know, the amber came from not that far away um, from the Baltic. But this boy was born and brought up in North Africa. Again, by isotope analysis, they can tell from your teeth where you came from, where you were brought up. And he came from North Africa. And yet he's got an amber necklace and ends up buried in Stonehenge. So the idea of ancient trade networks that, that went back and forth, as described in the Bible, is something that has a reality here. The Isle of Thanet in Kent, uh, this uh, historian, the Cambridge historian, she asks, well, is the Isle of Thanet a, a Phoenician outpost? The word Thanet um, has a, a, a Phoenician meaning. And she, she um, speculates that uh, it was a major pre-Roman trading settlement founded by Phoenician merchants from Cantiz or Carthage. And again, they've uh, analysed the bodies that are buried in the um, burial sites. And again, a good proportion of those that are buried in these ancient graves in Thanet came not from Thanet, they came from the Mediterranean indicating that there was a, a good movement of people back and forth along these ancient trading routes. In fact, Himilco um, in 500 AD, so at the end of the Phoenician age, he, he traces um, what uh, they thought then were ancient trading routes. And he comes up um, to the British Isles as part of that. And he's, uh, he's mentioned by Pliny as, as being this great explorer who is opening up these ancient roots are discovering what was what was uh, gone before and what are they finding well they're finding that these roots um, were traded by the Phoenicians many years before them but I guess the the real smoking gun was uh, the discovery in 2019 of this Cornish tin off the coast of Israel I originally gave this talk, or part of this talk in 2016. And I scoured and scoured and scoured for evidence that you could find of Cornish tin being in the Mediterranean. And the closest I could get then was that I could find Phoenician shipwrecks off Cornwall that had got uh, anchor posts that were identified as Phoenician. And I could find tin in those shipwrecks that looked identical to the tin that was found in Mediterranean shipwrecks. But there was no direct link but in 2019, this article popped up uh, in the press. Analysis of chemical composition of the ingots by researchers indicates that the metal didn't come from Central Asia, as sometimes been assumed based on early inscriptions, but from tin deposits in Cornwall or Devon, possibly from the Carmelis area of West Cornwall. And that's not far from our Camborne Ecclesia. And there it is in a shipwreck off the coast of Israel. What more evidence could we possibly have? Bob Johnson, who is a specialist in British prehistory says, it's a very exciting find. While we speculated the Southwest of Britain was an important source of tin at this period, due to the relatively few sources of metal, we didn't have direct evidence of trade linking to the Eastern Mediterranean. And Daniel Berger said, that there could have been long distance trade or exchange systems between the British Isles and the Eastern Mediterranean is not a new idea. However, this is the first concrete evidence that tin was one of the driving forces of those trade networks. We have analyzed only 23 tin ingots from Israel, but we have to assume that the amount of tin traded in the late Bronze Age must have been enormous. There must have been a great trading network bringing this tin from afar. And you can speculate that that tin in that shipwreck, which was dated um, 1000 BC, so pretty much the time of King Solomon, where was that destined for? Was the tin that went into the bronze of the things that were made for the temple? Was that Cornish tin? Remember that it was Hiram that cast the brass things, the laver and the, the um, pillars. 
because Hiram could source the tin. And obviously Hiram seemed to have the technology to cast the tin. It makes your hair stand on the back of your head to think that when Solomon was inaugurating that temple, that those things bought from Tarshish were part of it. And how fitting that would be, because the scriptures talk about Tarshish in the last times, bringing gold and silver to be offered to the great king, the greater than Solomon, who's going to build that temple in Jerusalem. How wonderful that history appears to be repeating itself. So when we ask who is Tarshish, there are a number of candidates. But I would say to you from the scriptures, from the evidence we've looked at, can only be one country that fits it all. Only Britain fulfills all of the things that are talked about in the scriptures of Tarshish. And that is why, even before all that evidence that we've looked at, brethren and sisters of 150 years ago and further back than that who read their scriptures from the scriptures were able to identify what nation it would be that would fulfill this Tarshish power and so brethren and sisters we are in a very privileged time because we're at the end of that 70 years of forgetting we are at the cusp of that time of remembrance when God will bless Tarshish, not for any righteousness, because she's not a righteous country, but for God's purpose. He sets up and he sets down kings to fulfill his purpose. And the purpose of this country in being reestablished is that she can fulfill the roles that God has preordained for her. We're going to look now in our, our final little section as to several things that show us, I think, with, with the scripture in hand, show us that we're not on the wrong path in understanding that this country is this revived Tarshish power. Now, the first thing I want to look at is free ports. Now, it's a thing with the government that they want to set up free ports. And a lot of um, academics are a bit puzzled. Why, why does the British government keep going on about making free ports because actually this is not a huge amount of economic sense for it. Free ports are really good where you've got high taxation countries. Actually, Britain is quite a low taxation country. They say, well, why, why are you going on about making these free ports? Well, there might well be blessings that the economists haven't worked out. But the really interesting thing is free ports were first invented by the Phoenicians. Here we have an article, several studies demonstrate the free ports as a trade concept started with the Phoenicians about 900 years BC. They had the idea of, of being able to trade easily. There would be no taxes when you bought something into a port because you wanted to take it out from that port and take it off somewhere else. And so their wealth was multiplied by, by this idea of free ports. And very interestingly, this government seems to be fairly obsessed with the idea of free ports. They see it as part of their levelling up agenda. I think it's going to turbocharge their Brexit success. And it may well do. But it's interesting that they've picked on something that other, other people would say, why are you doing that? This uh, Phil Radford, who's a trade analyst, he said, I spent the last year analysing UK manufacturing and my work pinpoints three industries where Britain can restore export capability or become world beaters. Naval shipbuilding, offshore wind power, and pharmaceuticals. And it's interesting that shipbuilding is something that is, that is rising uh, on the political agenda. You know, 10, 20 years ago, people laugh if you said, well, Britain's a maritime nation. They said, well, we haven't got any ships. We used to have a big navy, now we've got very little. But slowly, Britain has been rebuilding her capability. This is a policy paper from the British government, Embracing the Ocean. Um, and it says, uh, as a, both an island nation and a major global trading power, the maritime domain is fundamental to UK prosperity and security. And this uh, 
paper highlights that the maritime domain is crucial to trade and to the global sector itself is growing strongly. And uh, for item three, the UK is well positioned to provide compelling solutions to global maritime challenges. And government and industry must work together with greater urgency to compete internationally. This government has been ahead of the curve. Everybody's now saying, hang on a minute, do we really want to be relying on Russia and China for our goods and for our safety? We need to make sure that the navigation of the seas is open. We need to make sure that we've got continuity of supply. And Britain is saying, well, well, we'll help make sure that that takes place. We'll go back to our ancient roots of, of making sure that the passage of the sea is safe. And so this government has decided that it's going to build more boats. Uh, they're going to inject four billion into regional shipbuilding to deliver more than 150 new naval and civil vessels in the uh, next 30 years. You see, they realize that if you can't build a ship, then you can't transport your goods uh, if um, somebody else doesn't want you to. And in actual fact, this is a, a Financial Times article um, from uh, Australia. Uh, it says, uh, Australia faces a national emergency unless it re-establishes a sovereign commercial shipping fleet to ensure critical goods flow during times of war and economic sanctions. The war in Ukraine, alongside Canberra's geopolitical tensions with Beijing, have highlighted the vulnerability of Australia's security and economy, given its supply chain is almost completely reliant on ships registered to other countries. Now, Britain has already picked up on this being an issue. Australia has now suddenly realized, if you don't control how your goods get to you, then you are at the mercy of, of nations that might not want you um, to do very well. And we're seeing that, aren't we? We saw that with COVID, where supply chains were under strain and, and well, you will be last in the queue. And we've seen that with Ukraine, Putin turning on and off the gas as a political weapon means that countries like Britain have said, we need to be independent. We need to have our own sources of supply. And I think we will see over the next few years, a great um, expansion in the network of, of trade between Britain and places that Britain trusts. Uh, this is quite an interesting uh, article. Uh, we've set up, or Britain has set up uh, a UK shore um, agency to go back to the future to actually try and work out how you can basically go back to sailing ships, high-tech sailing ships, because as part of their um, zero um, carbon agenda, well, shipping brings, a, brings forth lots of emissions. And isn't it interesting? Well, of course, the Phoenicians had sailing ships and they brought their trade by sailing ships. And, you know, uh, here we've got Britain saying, well, it'd be quite a good idea to sail. Uh, we, we can go back to our ancient, uh, our ancient uh, um, history uh, and we can, uh, we can master sailing ships. They might be quite the same as uh, the ancient sailing ships, but I think it's very interesting that almost the angels are saying to those that are looking for these things, well, you want to know whether it's Tarshish or not? Well, just look how many boxes you can tick uh, when you want to compare them to the Phoenicians. Britain strategically has made the decision to tilt towards the Indo-Pacific. They see that's where the growth is in trade, but they also see that's where the threats are. So if you want to trade around the world, you want to go and trade with those nations that are growing quickly, but you also need to make sure that your goods can, can travel back and forth. And that's been part of the British strategy for the last few years. In short, it says, uh, the UK appears to tilt further east of Suez, British strategic partners for the Indo-Pacific, a move that's been underway for some time. Since the early 2010s, the UK has deepened its strategic relations with the cult states and countries of Southeast Asia, as well as Japan and Australia, as well while also moving to bolster its strategic array of military facilities throughout the region, including Bahrain and Amman. In the last paragraph, Britain's Indo-Pacific tilt appears to have Johnson's direct approval. As Foreign Secretary in 2016, he told an audience in Bahrain that the UK's policy of disengagement in the region in the 60s and 70s was a mistake. And insofar as we are now capable, and we're capable of a lot, 
we want to reverse that policy. You see how the forgetting is being forgotten, going back to their roots, being this, this trading nation. And of course, we've heard lots of uh, Arcus uh, last year and this, this great alliance between these three countries. But this is an Australian article, uh, and it says uh, this, is, this is a really big thing um, for Australia and for the world. In fact, it says uh, towards the end of the article there, the Australia needs friends over several years of being punished by Beijing for the sheer rudeness of failing to subordinate our national interests to China. More than at any time since the end of the Second World War, the strategic interests of Australia, the US, and the UK closely align. This must amount to more than just the self-admiration of like-minded democracies. We need to pool our scientific, industrial, and defense capabilities in ways that add strength to a collective pushback against Beijing. Tarshish and the Young Lions are there in an alliance in Ezekiel 38. And here we see the importance of this alliance being recognized and being strengthened. And uh, just a second uh, paragraph on here. One anonymous Australian official noted, Arcus has virtually restructured the entirety of Canberra's defense and foreign policy thinking. UK National Security Advisor Stephen Lovegrove described Arcus as perhaps the most significant capability collaboration anywhere in the world in the last six decades. It fits neatly into the UK's integrated review, which promotes London's return the Indo-Pacific. This is a great significance. The last 60 years, you know, you think, well, when was NATO set up? He's really saying that, that this is as important as, as, the NATO, as NATO and the EU, as being a strategic alliance that, that we can see going forward is going to be vitally important. And isn't it just what the scriptures tell us of, of this Tarshish power? Brothers and sisters, these are exciting things. And uh, again, just the second paragraph, as Britain looks more towards the Indo-Pacific, its regional allies and partners will be compelled to realize that they are increasingly connected to the Euro-Atlantic. Indeed, if the Indo-Pacific is to be kept free and open, semi-external powers like the UK will need to be involved. Here you've got a power in Britain that is interested in the Euro-Atlantic, but he's also interested in the Indo-Pacific. And here they say, well, actually, they're, they're interconnected. If you're going to have worldwide trade, you've got to make sure that all of the world can be sailed and be free. And so it is that Britain has been investing in these things. But the other thing, just finally, we just want to very look at quickly, look at very quickly, is metal. So how important it was for Tarshish, but that's where the metal came from. And it's still the case. The London Metal Exchange is the place, the number one place in the world. If you want to buy your tin or your silver, well, not your silver, sorry, but your copper and your lead and your, your steel, you go to the London Metal Exchange. It is the hub of the world's metal trading. If you want to buy your gold and silver, then you go to the Bullion Exchange, which again is in London. So metals and trading of metals is still something that is very, very important to Britain. But that's not where it started, was it? It started in Tarshish with the digging out of metals out of the ground. And how remarkable that at this particular time, after closing all the mines in uh, Cornwall, suddenly there is a, a new uh, perspective of um, Cornwall for metals, not just tin, we'll come on to that in a second, but also for lithium. Lithium we need for our batteries, big drive to go zero carbon. Well, you need, you need lithium um, for your batteries and you need tin for your batteries as well. And where can you go? Well, interestingly, you can get lithium brine from the same place where the tin is found. According to battery researchers, the Faraday Institute, UK demand for lithium carbonate will exceed 70,000 tonnes by 2035. Together, Cornish lithium and British lithium could, in theory, supply the lot. 
And this is a, this is a big thing because at the moment, the demand for lithium is, is far outstripping supply. And lithium, most of the source of lithium is, is dried, is put in ponds and evaporated. It takes quite a long time to go from the, the, the briny waters to uh, the finished product. But actually with the geothermal um, nature of the rocks in Cornwall, you can pretty much bring it out at the sort of grade that you want straight away. And of course it gives you great continuity of supply because it's in Britain. You don't have to bring it in from maybe unfriendly countries. And uh, this article, electric car broom ushers in a new era of tin mining in Cornwall. Pollux mine, 1.4 billion pound boost after new deposits are discovered and prices for the metal uh, rocket. And so there's the uh, Cornish metals have just um, this week, in fact, um, 28th of March, South Crofty revival hopes are boosted by Mick the miner, whoever he might be, but he's invented, he's invested 25 million, I think, of a 44 million pound package to pump out the South Crofty mine so they can start um, mining again because there are rich deposits down there and there is enough to, to make Britain self-sufficient in tin and be able to export it. It says, uh, uh, should be able to produce a second paragraph, should be able to produce four and a half thousand tons a year, more than enough to meet the UK's demand at present. Uh, global demand stands at 380,000 tons per year, having almost doubled since toxic lead was banned as a solder in Europe. Uh, and that's the thing, you need tin for electronics. Uh, this uh, article was saying, when you dig into the energy transition, you realize that tin is everything, says the uh, uh, chief executive. It's essential. You need tin for your global energy transition as part of your decarbonization. And uh, that was Cornish Tin. Uh, sorry, that was uh, Cornish Metals. There's another company called Cornish Tins. And they have just this week again uh, announced uh, uh, fundraising for drilling uh, around uh, this, this tin mine. This is right down in the very south of Cornwall, pretty much uh, uh, opposite uh, um, the islands. Not the Silly Isles, Mount, uh, St. Michael's Mount. This is pretty much uh, by St. Michael's Mount. You know, and St. Michael's Mount was a place of, uh, that the Phoenicians went. To. But on their website, it says, an opportunity that has taken 152 years to arrive. Why now? Well, we may well have the answer, mightn't we? Because the time of Tarshish's forgetting has gone. And this mine, which closed because of a land dispute, was described in 1929 as the richest in tin of all the Cornish mines, and probably the richest tin mine that's ever been worked that's why he's in the world. There are huge the resources of tin that are, are suddenly being developed why again. Is not working? because that was what Tarshish was known. <laughs> to start again. Brethren and sisters, to just draw our thoughts to a close. Our traditional understanding <laughs> of the Tarshish power has been vindicated by, by events mm, and discoveries in the last 10 years. And yet if we'd read our Bible, Hello? we would know that all those indications were there, so written by... Almighty God, many thousands of years ago. But we know from Ezekiel 38 that as the kingdom of men builds an alliance that is going to oppose the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns to this earth, there will be another alliance that will submit to the rule of Christ. That alliance will help build the kingdom will be a faithful servant like Hiram was. It will bring goods and people to the Lord Jesus Christ. But make no mistake, brothers and sisters, this is still a power that is part of the kingdom of men. This power needs to be humbled. It needs to be ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it needs to have a reformation. And that reformation probably isn't going to take place till after the Lord Jesus Christ is in, in power. When there will be those that will come and preach the gospel 
to these nations that will accept him first, that will be converted. Brethren and sisters, we mustn't be jingoistic. We mustn't think, oh, it's great, we're part of the Tarshish Alliance, we live there. We look for something better. We look for something greater. We look for the time when, in Daniel's image, the kingdom of man is swept away and the righteous rule of the Lord Jesus Christ begins. And God's glory and God's name will be manifested throughout all this earth. And we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org if you enjoyed the episode then please share it with others until next time may god bless you in your studies and your walk towards god's kingdom amen